Welcome to Boosting Your Financial IQ, a podcast for investors, business leaders, entrepreneurs, and individuals looking to transform their organizations and lives through greater financial literacy. I'm Steve Coffrin, and I'll be your guide as you seek to better your financial life. I turn around, grow, and invest in high potential companies, and I'm here to teach you the fundamentals of accounting and finance so you can speak the language of money and act intentionally to drive greater financial value. Are you ready? Let's do this. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Before we get started, remember that this content is for educational purposes and should not be construed as financial or legal advice. See the podcast notes or byfiq.com for a full list of disclaimers, terms, and conditions. Now on to the episode. Hey everyone, this is Steve Coffrin and you're tuning into Fin Weekly, where I provide weekly updates on what's happening in the world of finance and the economy. Today is Thursday, May 18th, and we're going to kick things off by talking about the debt situation that's unfolding in the United States. Here's an update on negotiations to raise the debt ceiling. Yesterday, President Biden and top U.S. Congressional Republican Kevin McCarthy affirmed their commitment to reach a deal soon to increase the federal government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling and avoid an economic meltdown. As a result of this news, the stock market rallied yesterday and closed 1.4% higher in hopes that a deal will be struck. Despite this news, if a default is avoided, the Treasury will need to replenish its cash supplies and it will do this through selling approximately $1 trillion in T-bills, which will likely have the same impact as another 25 basis point rate increase, further impacting the cost of capital and potentially slowing GDP growth even further. But keep in mind, folks, before you breathe a sigh of relief, in 2022, the U.S. government brought in $4.9 trillion in tax revenues, despite its $6.3 trillion in expenses. In other words, we are still at least a trillion and a half dollars short of balancing the budget. So raising the debt ceiling will likely result in printing of more money and more inflation. Think of it like this. It's like increasing your limit on your credit card so you can spend more without making more money or reducing your expenses, but rather just going into more debt, which never ends well. Let's talk about investors. Investors are moving to cash. The mood in the financial markets has darkened as more investors are moving towards cash, given the concern of a looming recession and a credit crunch. According to Bank of America's survey, 65% of fund manager participants are expecting a weaker economy in 2023 as global economic growth slows. Cash levels are on the rise in May. Investors are opting to hold more of their portfolios in cash compared to earlier this year, rather than investing in stocks and bonds. Now, where are they putting this money instead? Well, according to Bloomberg News, investors are allocating more of their portfolios to bonds, which isn't unusual during uncertain times. In fact, fixed income investments like bonds are now the biggest since 2009, indicating a strong preference for a more conservative approach from investors. In addition, investors are favoring technology sector stocks as a potential safe haven. Specifically, technology shares have seen the biggest increase over a two-month span since the global financial crisis in 2009. And on a technology-related note, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal 
opened a hearing with an AI-generated recording of his voice describing the risks of this emerging technology. In other words, he used artificial intelligence to write and deliver the first part of his speech, which is pretty ironic. And it's super crazy what artificial intelligence is doing and how it's transforming the world in which we live. Moving on to some big banking news, Wells Fargo and company has reached a settlement of $1 billion in a shareholder lawsuit accusing the bank of providing misleading statements regarding its compliance with federal consent orders after the 2016 scandal, which involved the bank creating unauthorized customer accounts. To recap, the lawsuit filed in 2020 by investors alleged that former CEO Tim Sloan and other executives made deceptive statements during testimony before Congress, as well as to investors and the media. Investors involved in the settlement claimed that executives painted an overly optimistic picture of their interactions with regulators, failing to disclose that their initial reform plans had actually been rejected. The funds from this settlement will be distributed to investors who purchased Wells Fargo stock between February 2nd, 2018 and March 12th, 2020. But this settlement isn't the first or even the second that Wells Fargo has had to pay on. It follows a previous settlement of $320 million back in 2017 related to executive and director involvement in the bank's fake account scandal. In 2018, Wells Fargo issued another settlement of $480 million to its shareholders. And in 2020, the bank reached a $3 billion settlement to resolve U.S. investigations into widespread consumer abuses, allowing them to avoid criminal charges following the scandal. Talk about scandalous, crazy, super scandalous. Moving on to U.S. retail sales. The latest data from the Commerce Department indicates that retail sales in the United States experienced growth in April, suggesting that despite economic challenges like inflation and high borrowing costs, consumer spending has remained resilient. Now, you need to take this data with a grain of salt. Economists had Economists had initially projected that sales would rise 0.8% in the month of April after a surprising drop in March. This decline was revised to negative 0.7% after initially coming in at a drop of 1%. Although the overall retail sales figure fell below the projected median estimate from a survey of economists when excluding sales for autos and gasoline, increases in sales actually exceeded expectations in seven out of 13 retail categories. But if you're like me, you may be asking yourself, how long will this uptick in consumer spending last though? I'm asking myself this question because recently, other published data showed that credit card balances are increasing with higher financing rates. In fact, total household debt in the United States reached a staggering record of $17 trillion in Q1 of 2023. Now, this could potentially pose a challenge to long-term sustained consumer spending. In response to this, policymakers from the Fed are expecting to put a pause on raising interest rates starting next month after several increases totaling 5 percentage points since early last year to help curb inflation. Remember folks, two-thirds of our GDP comes directly from consumer spending, so I'll be looking out for the more comprehensive inflation-adjusted report of April spending later this month. All right, on to a shift from goods to services. Something else that's important and related to U.S. retail spending is that there are indications that the shift that American consumers are spending less on goods and more on services is actually leveling off. 
The transition to spending more on services than goods spiked in 2022 with consumers dining out in restaurants and traveling more after restrictions from the pandemic eased up. This trend might be over though soon because even though people are spending more money overall, because you know, things cost a lot more, the overall trend is that people are lowering their spending on goods and services in total. Data from Bank of America indicated that spending on things like lodging decreased by over 3% compared to the prior year, and airline spending has also fallen by 4.5% compared to just last month when I reported the same data. To further support these figures, the short-term rental app Airbnb has stated that they expect to see a decline in bookings and daily rates for the rest of this quarter compared to the rates from the same time last year. On to home improvement. Another indication of potential difficulties for retailers is Home Depot. The home improvement retailer, which initiated the quarterly earnings season for other merchants, later revised its statements with a more downward outlook over concerns about consumers pulling back on spending. They are now anticipating a potential decline in comparable sales of nearly 5% this year. Okay, we talked about investor sentiment and consumer spending, but now let's circle back to what I talked about at the very beginning of this episode when I was mentioning the debt ceiling, and let's dive into government spending. While a deal surrounding the U.S. debt ceiling still hasn't been reached, one factor contributing to the tensions surrounding debt ceiling negotiations is government spending. Specifically, the United States is now allocating a larger annual budget for things like servicing its substantial debt Wow, that's a lot of S's, especially for a guy who has a slight lisp. But anyways, the government is spending more money on servicing its debt than it spent on national defense in 2022 alone. Compared to just 10 years ago, the estimated annualized cost of debt servicing for the federal government is approximately 90% higher, an increase which is partially attributed to the expanding debt pile, but is also the result of a significant rise in things like U.S. yields. This makes me wonder, how sustainable is the spending path anyways? Think about it, our debt in the United States is spiraling out of control, and there are really only three ways to tackle this problem. Not all good solutions, but there are three ways. Number one, we can raise taxes as a nation. If we raise taxes though, that's gonna impact individuals and businesses and further hurt the economy. So that may not be the best political move, especially with an election year on the horizon. Option number two is to cut government spending. But as we know from these negotiations, President Biden and the Democratic Party, they do not want to make cuts to the federal budget. Okay, this is a real issue. If they do make cuts, that's gonna to equate to further job losses and less money being pumped into the economy through the government. Option three is to print more money. So since we have a deficit, remember we had a $1.4 trillion deficit in 2022, and that number is probably even larger in 2023. In order to cover this deficit, okay, money doesn't just grow on trees. You can't just raise the debt ceiling without implications. So if we're not raising taxes, if we're not cutting spending, then we're printing more money. And if we print more money, it's gonna lead to more inflation. Well, in order to curb inflation, the Fed has to raise interest rates. And I talked about this in detail last week. As they raise interest rates, banks are gonna be hurt even more because their cash is invested in bonds. And when interest rates go up, bond prices fall. So we have a real predicament here because banks are already struggling 
increases in interest rates are going to hurt banks, which is going to require even more money being pumped into the system to shore things up. Also, interest rates slow the economy and they hurt businesses and the consumer. So in order to get our economy back on track in a sustainable manner, we have to do things that are going to be very painful but nobody wants to do that. So we're just kicking the metaphorical financial can down the road, but one day there's gonna be a reckoning and we're gonna to have to take the painful medicine that is required in order to fix the economy. Okay, so that's enough about the US. Let's move on to China and their recovery. China's economic recovery seems to be losing steam after an initial burst of consumer and business activity earlier this year. The latest data shows that industrial output, retail sales, and fixed investments grew at a slower pace than what was expected in April. As a result, there are calls for more policy stimulus to boost growth, so we'll be keeping our eyes peeled to see how things evolve in that corner of the world in the next few weeks. Let's talk about Michael Burry now. Moving on to some more global economic news, but still related to China, Michael Burry, a renowned money manager whose name you may recognize from the movie The Big Short, is revealing that he is big long when it comes to China. He demonstrated his confidence in China's market by increasing his investments in e-commerce giants JD.com and Alibaba. These two companies have now become the largest holdings in his Scion Asset Management portfolio, comprising 20% of his total stock holdings. Burry has also made other strategic investments in regional banks during the first quarter, such as First Republic, which was later acquired by JP Morgan. Other notable investments of his includes PacWest Bank Corp, Western Alliance Bank, and New York Community Bank. As of Tuesday morning, Alibaba shares rose as much as 1.6% in Hong Kong, while JD.com jumped 4.7%. But on a whole, China's consumer spending and industrial activity is growing at a slower pace, as I mentioned, than expected this year, as indicated by China's MSCI index, which has remained flat as their economy shows signs of losing momentum. It's also worth mentioning that back in January, hedge funds had a net exposure of 13.3% to China, but that percentage has now decreased to 10.5% as US hedge funds mull over geopolitical tensions, regulatory changes, and more broad concerns about the economic conditions in China. Let's talk about Pfizer's big bond sale. Something else on my radar this week is Pfizer's big bond sale. The pharmaceutical giant sold $31 billion in debt, making it the fourth biggest bond sale in the history of the United States. Whoa. The sale, which included an eight-part investment grade deal that has already raked in $85 billion in orders, will be utilized to finance Pfizer's acquisition of Seagen Incorporated. This is the largest known debt financing involved in a merger or acquisition so far this year, but the company's decision to tap the capital markets aligns with the trend among businesses aiming to secure funds ahead of a potential increase in borrowing costs resulting from the ongoing U.S. debt ceiling standoff and other economic conditions. This is an example of what I've been talking about recommending companies and individuals to secure access to capital now to prepare for the future. And lastly, new delinquencies. And finally, signs of financial stress among U.S. households are becoming a little more apparent as delinquencies rise for various types of consumer loans. I already mentioned that things like credit card balances are remaining high right now compared to typical trends seen at the start of a new year. 
Usually, consumers will accumulate credit card debt over the holiday season and pay it down the following year, sometimes using their tax refunds to do so, but this was not the case for the first time in over 20 years, meaning that some families may still be facing strain from things like higher prices, and as a result, they might be using their credit cards to help sustain spending. Overall consumer debt increased by $148 billion for the first quarter, reaching a total of $17 trillion, as I mentioned before, and even surpassed pre-pandemic levels by $2.9 trillion. While the overall delinquency rate remains historically low at 2.6%, the proportion of debt that became delinquent, delinquent meaning 30 days or more late, is increasing for various types of loans, including credit cards and auto debt. Mortgage originations dropped to their lowest level in a decade in the first quarter of the year, but balances on home equity lines of credit actually increased for the fourth consecutive quarter following a 13-year decline. This tells me that consumers are tapping into available credit options. A lot of households did recover their financial resilience during the pandemic thanks to things like mortgage refinancing, but things might get a little tricky for younger borrowers who are still paying off student debt once payments for those student loans resume later this year. So there you have it, a bunch of wackiness in the market. We are living in a day and age where the financial markets do not match economic reality and what we are being fed by the mainstream media may not represent what is really going on in the economy. That is why I'm so passionate about educating people on financial literacy, and this includes you, so they can be well-informed and make up their own minds on what's going on. Last week, I was in Amsterdam with my wife, and we were watching the clean version of The Big Short. It's interesting because back in 2008, when the housing market was beginning to crumble and financial institutions were beginning to fail, the mainstream media painted this picture that everything was okay and that the fundamentals of the economy were strong. However, shortly thereafter, everything started to unravel and we fell into one of the biggest financial crises of all times. Now, I don't say this to scare you, I say this to encourage you to think for yourself. I report on data that is publicly available, but the integrity of that data can't always be trusted. So it's my job to point things out and boost your financial intelligence so you can make up your own mind and rely on your own discernment. So here's what I recommend for this upcoming week. If you are a business owner, founder, CEO, or business leader, check out my newest podcast called Business Strategy. These first few episodes will help you to understand what strategy is, so you can in turn put in place a strategy to help you navigate these turbulent times. Business as usual is a death trap, folks. You have to put in place a process to review your strategy and financial position every month, at least, at a minimum, and make adjustments so you can move at market speed. If you wanna talk more about this, reach out to me at steve at byfiq.com. Also, if you're listening to the audio version of this and wanna see the video and gain access to other useful resources to boost your business and financial acumen, be sure to download our free Boosting Your Financial IQ app in the Apple app or Google Play Store. In the meantime, keep on learning and growing. Cheers. Hey, real quick. If you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for Boosting Your Financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at byfiq.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. 
One last thing, if you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit byfiq.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play App Store today. Thanks again. 